0: So, um, today we come to Revelation 2 and 3, and we're going to cover them both in one sermon. And the reason for this is because in the summer of 2019, just three and a half years ago or so, we uh, went through the seven letters in seven weeks. And so uh, I don't want to take the time, since our time is limited, going through the book of Revelation in this year. I didn't want to take the time and take seven sermons, so I'm going to preach on the big chunk of chapter 2 and 3. And um, because this passage is so long and takes up a lot of time just to read it, and because it says so many things, I have a lot more this morning than one sermon can bear. And so... um, I've, instead of abbreviating the notes, I'm just going to end the sermon at a given place in the notes. And, uh, but I want you to know that the notes are there if you would like to read the rest of the sermon. Or the rest of the notes of the sermon. So, now let's read together Revelation 2 and 3. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. He who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. The words of the first and the last who came I'm sorry who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty But you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual, immor- sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a name, new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because I have kept my word about because you have kept your, my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to, his church, to the churches. And to the, church of the, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Right, this is the last one. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So uh, this is a chart of the seven letters. It, it contains in fine print all of the, um, the text in chapters 2. Um, so you can see the, the names of the seven cities and the seven churches to whom the uh, letters are addressed on the top. And the place in uh, Revelation 2 and 3 that they're found. Is there in order. And then on the left, you, you notice that uh, the letters can be divided up in in uh, ways. They have a lot of parallels, a lot of uh, similarities. In a way that, like the the epistles of Paul, don't have these kind of similarities. Some some have some similarities, but, but you can't do anything like this in the book of uh, uh, the epistles of Paul. So the first row has the city, the uh, destination of the letter the second has the name that Jesus gives himself or the title that he calls himself when, he's, when he is um, addressing these that particular church and I want to stop there for a minute because I wanted to point out to you that as we go along on um, those names that Jesus gives himself every one of those is derived from the first chapter of Revelation you know Him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So these are references back to chapter one, all of them, until you get to Philadelphia, the sixth letter. And there it says: the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David. Who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Now, uh, this is significant because this is different than what is given in chapter 1. The only thing that uh, is similar is that there's a reference to the one who has the keys of Hades and death. Keys of death and Hades. But nothing about the key of David, nothing about opening and shutting, anything like that. So, uh, what is going on? Well, uh, I, there's basically a sermon's worth of material for you in the notes, in the addendum to the notes, that goes through that and why and what he's doing, you know, and, uh, and so read that later. But we won't have time to go into that kind of thing now because we're talking about this from a bird's eye view. Okay, so the third column I entitled, sorry, not column, the third row I entitled, I know. Because at the beginning of each letter, Jesus says, I know. I know about your works. I know what you're going through. I know where you live. I know what's going on with you. And this is one of the strong themes of these letters, that Jesus knows what's happening in his churches. And he doesn't just know individuals, he knows churches. He knows what they're going through, he knows what they're dealing with. He reminds us in every letter seven times that he knows. And actually, there's a couple of other references to the fact that he knows in other parts of each letter. And he doesn't just see on the outside like we see each other, he sees into the heart. You have a reputation of being alive, he says to Sardis in 3 1, but you are dead. I know what's going on inside your heart. Everybody else thinks that you're fine on the outside, but I know what's going on, on the inside, and it's dead. So, not only does he know things about his churches, but he also has something to say to his churches. Now, the seven letters begin very similarly, and they end very similarly. But the heart of the message that Jesus has for each church is very different. And in this we see that the churches are in different, very different situations. Some are in pretty good shape. Others are hanging over a cliff by a thread. Two are told that if they don't repent, he's going to come against them. Perhaps remove their lampstand. Two are commended without any rebuke at all. And four are mixed. They're commended for some things and rebuked for others. So we see the variety that there is about how the churches are doing. And so Jesus deals with them in different ways. He is not a cookie cutter savior who just runs everyone through the same process. He has a custom design curriculum and training process that he puts each of his churches through and each of his people through. But there's another way that the, these letters are similar to one another. When each church is corrected by Jesus for some failing, the solution he offers is always the same. Repent. It is mentioned eight times in seven letters. Every time Jesus corrects one of his churches, he follows that up by calling them to repent. This is so important. Because you see, it's not enough to just change. To just reform. You can reform by yourself, or at least try to. Repent is a relational act. You're going to a person and making the relationship right. And in my opinion, 21st century Christians, at least in America, don't talk a lot, don't talk nearly enough about repentance. And don't emphasize it in their own lives. Yes, you've got to get your act together. And there's many commands that talk about that kind of thing. But that's not the essence of the first step, and that's repent. Repent of your sin before the Lord. Next uh, row, the fourth one down, or uh, let's go down to the second to the last one. And this is uh, every single one has at the end, or near the end of it, A promise given to the one who conquers. And we talked last week about what this means, about the whole idea of persevering through suffering, you know, keeping your faith even in the face of difficulties. And that's what conquering means. But each one is given a promise. And you know the glorious thing about this, this is one of the reasons why it's so cool to have a chart like this, is you can go across the row of he who conquers and there are seven synonyms of those, the reward that is given to those who remain faithful to the end it's very encouraging and very beautiful and some of it's very mysterious then look at the last uh, the very bottom row they all end with exact or they it's not always the same order but they all say near the very end he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to his churches and uh, you know implying that not everyone is given the gift of what of being able to hear what jesus is saying here but if you're given this gift don't let it go to waste Realize that it's a precious treasure to be given the ability to hear and don't just put it in your closet and forget about it. So many times, Christians are struggling with something like fear or, or anger or lust and it's because they don't have it's not because they don't have eyes to see, it's because they're not looking. The answers are in God's word. But they're not looking. They have eyes to see. But they're not paying attention. And Jesus calls us. He who has ears to hear. Or he he who has eyes to see. Let him see. And um, somewhere in the Bible. God speaks to the very struggle that you're having. No matter what it is. And you need to find it. So you can... So you can benefit from it. Okay. Now, so that's the chart. And, and now I'd like to go through a few, you know, basic big things that we see as we look at these letters as a whole. The first one is, it is a great reminder of where we are today and where we're going to be tomorrow. Um, the church in this age is very different than the church in the age to come. We have seen from reading, you know, even in our uh, studies as a church, we've seen going through the book of Acts, we've seen going through Corinthians, we've seen going through James, we've seen going through Galatians, that the churches right now, at least in the middle of the first century, were filled with problems and struggles. And now we come to these seven letters, and this pattern continues, doesn't it? The church of Ephesus has abandoned their first love of Christ. Pergamum and Thyatira are putting up with false teaching, including teaching that encouraged sexual immorality. Sardis has a reputation for being alive, but inside they're dead. Laodicea is lukewarm, and it makes Jesus feel like vomiting. Ephesus and Sardis are in such bad shape that Jesus threatens that if they don't repent, he's going to come against them. And it's pretty clear that the worst churches have no idea that they're so bad off. And this is nowhere clearer than in the letter to Laodicea, where Jesus says... You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I have need of nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And so not only are there big problems, but so often there's blindness to those problems. And this is the way it's been down through the ages of the church. And today is no different. The church is a mixed bag. This is who we are. We are sinners and therefore the church is racked with problems and weaknesses. And it's been that way since the first epistles. We don't just know this by experience. We know this from the Bible. You know, there are people who say, Oh, we should go back to the way things were in the first century. Well, I don't think they've read the New Testament. The New Testament is filled with... Churches with problems. But here's the beautiful thing about the book of Revelation. It starts with the church of now. The church of this age and all of its messiness. But it doesn't end there. It ends with the church as it will be when Christ returns. And cleans up all the mess. Hear this from Revelation 21, this description of the church in glory. One of the seven angels said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a rare A most rare jewel like jasper, clear as crystal. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives its light. Gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And there'll be no night there. The kings of the earth will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever come into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's a very different picture than what we get in these seven letters. And that's on purpose. The book of Revelation tells us where we are, and it also tells us where we're going. And when we read these seven letters, we feel the discouragement of the now. But we have to put an ointment, a healing ointment on our discouragement by looking to see where we're going. Two and three are the church in the present. 21 is the church on the last day. We believe in the church for two reasons. Number one, it has a glorious future. That's why we invest in it. One day its stock is going to soar to unimaginable heights. The church will not always be where it is now. In spite of its present troubles and failures, the church has a glorious destiny. One day it will be united and spotless and glorious Sinless and beautiful beyond imagination. That's where this train that we call the church is going. And that's why I'm not getting off this train. The second reason that we believe in the church leads us to our next point. We see in these letters that Jesus is invested in his churches. Think about the significance of these words of Jesus in these epistles. Here he came to earth. He spends three years training 12 disciples. Then he dies on the cross, is raised from the dead. 40 days more with his disciples. 10 days after he ascends. And then Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit's poured out. And now here we are reading these seven seven letters that were written 60 plus years later. She is dictating them to, these church, to be written for these churches. During those 60 plus years, the apostles have labored by the power of the Spirit to plant churches all over the Roman world, to make foundational decisions for the church, to write the New Testament. And through this time, Jesus is still speaking, though mainly through the apostles. But gradually the apostles die off. But then right before the last apostle dies off, right before the capstone of the New Testament is put in place, Jesus speaks directly and personally one final time to seven churches in Asia Minor. It had now been 40 years since the apostle Paul had brought the gospel to this area of Asia Minor. There are now multiple churches in the area. After Paul's second letter to Timothy, the New Testament gives us no more information about how any of the churches were doing for the next 30 years or so. But now these seven letters are the last indication we have about the kinds of things that the church was struggling with and the ways it was succeeding at the end of the first century. Now, a lot has happened from the time that Jesus walked on the earth to the time that John penned these words, especially to the Jewish people. You saw the Judaizer controversy trouble the church and require the council of Jerusalem in Acts fifteen. All the apostles have died, they've all been, by at least tradition tells us, they're all martyred for their testimony about Christ. Many Christians have died in similar ways. The whole New Testament was written, with the exception of this book of Revelation. The city of Jerusalem in 7 A.D. has been ruined and destroyed, and many Jews have been massacred by the Romans. Remember Moses when he was tending his sheep in Midian, and uh, God appeared to him. Remember how Moses was, you know, just going along on a normal day thinking about his sheep and trying to find place for them to graze counting them making sure he hasn't lost any making sure he stays hydrated but what was god thinking about when god met with moses that day god was thinking about his people in egypt i have heard the cries of my people in egypt God was thinking about something completely different than what Moses was thinking about. And remember when Jesus was walking through the town square in Jericho, surrounded by a massive crowd eager to catch a glimpse of him? Everybody else was concerned about seeing Jesus or about not getting separated from a loved one so they don't get lost or whatever. What was Jesus concerned about? Jesus was concerned about blind Bartimaeus on the edge of the crowd, calling out desperately for the Son of David. You remember, Mark ten. Well, now, in a world rife with diseases and wars and injustices and poverty, what's Jesus concerned about when he comes to, to uh, and appears to John? He's concerned about the fading faith of the believers of believers in Smyrna are going to react to the brutal upcoming persecution. He's concerned about the false teaching being tolerated in Pergamum. He's concerned about the bad influence of a certain woman in Thyatira. He's concerned about the lukewarm faith of the Laodiceans. That's what Jesus is concerned about. And of all the wonderful things in the world at that time, the great pieces of art that were being produced, the buildings built, some of which are still around today, 2,000 years later, the discoveries being made, the great love stories being lived out, great advances in knowledge and science. What was Jesus excited about? Jesus was excited about the patient endurance of the church at Ephesus in the face of brutal persecution. He was excited about the willingness of the church at Smyrna to suffer poverty, knowing that they are rich in Christ. He's excited about the church in Pergamum holding fast to his name, even though one of their most important members had recently been bartered for his faithful testimony the church and he was excited about the church in Philadelphia keeping his word even though in that society they've been stripped of all their power on account of their faith in Christ so do we see how close to the heart of Jesus is the welfare of his churches this isn't surprising it's his church he loves it and he's building it so it's where his heart is How are my churches doing? What are my churches believing? Who are they listening to? How are they living? What are they focusing on? Are they being the light of the world? And you see, Jesus isn't concerned just about individual Christians. We see here that he's also interested in the churches. And he's working in the churches. He said he'd build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Matthew 18, 16. Churches are not just earthly institutions which some people find helpful in their faith. Churches belong to Jesus. He is personally involved with them. Jesus doesn't just have a personal relationship with individuals. He has a personal relationship with with each church. And he's communicating with them, affirming them, correcting them, assisting them, listening to them, and longing that they would listen to him. We saw that it seems to say that each church has a guardian angel in Revelation one twenty. I believe that churches, local earthly churches, are known and talked about in heavenly places. And if heaven cares about them, and if Jesus cares about them, we should care about them too. Whatever church a believer is part of, that church influences them. And it also influences others. And the healthier the church is, the better off we all are. So all of us should have a zeal for the wellness of the Lord's churches. How can a person love Jesus and not love the one that Jesus says is my bride? And today, when so many are giving up on the church, there's no better justification For doing so than there was in the first century. Jesus hadn't given up on the church at the end of the first century. And he hasn't given up on it now. And neither should we. In spite of all of its failures. The third thing. Is that even though churches have many flaws. We must remember that it's not all bad. There are a lot of good things happening in these seven churches which Christ commended them for. And there are good things happening today and good things that will happen in the future. So as we wait for the Lord's return, we work with what we've got and we pray for the church knowing that the Lord is more invested than we'll ever be. Because of him, Even in this age, churches are capable of terrific things. The hardest thing about pastoring is seeing how your own sin damages Christ's people and church. The most delightful thing about being a pastor is seeing the Lord do many beautiful things in people's lives and in relationships and being associated with so many heroes of the faith people who cling to christ even in the face of unspeakable tragedy people say who say yes to jesus even though it means saying no to their earthly hopes and dreams People who obey Christ's commands even when it feels like it's going to kill them. Can I give you a few examples? In the first hundred years of slavery in America, very few black slaves embraced the Christian faith of their captors and masters. Not a lot of people know that. Very few. Slaves were Christians from 1640-ish to 1740-ish. The masters tried to use scripture to justify their racist oppression. And it's human nature to resist the ideology of your oppressors. But the Great Awakening changed all that beginning in the late 1730s when preachers began to preach a gospel of love for all men instead of just emphasizing the duty of slaves to obey their masters. And in that revival, black people fell in love with the real Christ, no longer confronted just by the Christ of white people. It seems to me amazing And miraculous that this happened. And that today, after all that has happened to African Americans in slavery and since, there are higher percentage of African Americans in America who claim the name of Christ than there are white people. I think that's beautiful. It just means that God really got a hold of them here's another one there are many Christians who experience same sex attraction even though it's the last thing they want to experience and in a day when there's so much pressure to follow your heart and so much ammunition to rationalize doing so I find it amazing that so many recognize God's will in Scripture and refuse to go along, saying no to their own desires, it's a beautiful and powerful testimony to Christ, in my opinion. And then the third and final one. Over the last 21 years, there's been much talk And much news about abuse in the Christian church. And this gives us a glimpse of both the worst and the best of Christ's church. The worst, of course, is those who shame Christ by using his name and his church to exploit and destroy for their own pleasure. Or who protect those who do but but the best is also seen in this that so many who have experienced abuse even from church leaders have not turned away from Christ or even from his church in spite of their experience, but continue to cling to him and continue to do what they can to help Christ's church instead of just wanting to burn it down. I think that's amazing. The world is not worthy of people like this. And this kind of stuff doesn't happen by itself. This is God at work among his people. And I've lived long enough in the church, over 50 years now, to have had the privilege of witnessing so much beauty and so much sacrifice and so much love and so much courage. And it is a great privilege to know and to worship alongside of those for whom To live is Christ. So I will end there. But again, there's more if you would like to read the notes which are on the website. Um, And if you can't get the website, I'll be happy to send them to you. Let's pray. Surely it is a sharp, double-edged sword that pierces down to the deepest parts of our being. And we thank you that you love us enough that you don't just let cancerous tumors fester in our bodies, but that in love, you carefully work to open us up with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and do your good surgery, which we so desperately need. Oh Lord, forgive us for ways that we hide from you. For ways that we think that somehow we have to protect ourselves from you. For ways that we believe the lie that our will is actually better than your will. Oh Lord, give us eagerness To say yes to you and let you do whatever it is that you need to do in us. To conform us to the image of your son. And now we thank you that we have the privilege to come to the table of our Lord. To celebrate what he did for us upon the cross. When he bore the weight of our guilt So that we wouldn't have to bear it. And set us free and cleansed us from sin. Oh Lord, what a privilege to come and celebrate. Be with us as we do so. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.